welcome to episode 150 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I am here with... Andrew Swafford. Lydia Creech. Nathan Smith. And Bill Moore. In today's episode, we will be doing our usual 50 episode thing i guess i don't know how to what to call it. the the every 50 episodes celebration. celebration thing we do which is where we bring all the the kind of founders of cinematary together and we do a, a movie swap secret <laughs> santa yeah christmas no. secret santa except we all know what the movies are yeah <laughs> and it's the audience doesn't it's a surprise sure yeah that is true, because no, I don't think anybody's really like rated the movies or anything on on Letterboxd, which is the the you know indicator. Um, but yeah, let's go ahead and uh, let's start this thing. Oh, before before we start, maybe we could uh, do a quick announcement about things that are now available on the Cinematary website that were not available previous to this episode. Oh, okay. Um, if you if you lovely listeners go to cinematary.com and go to the top and click on store, you're going to be like, what store? I don't think that was there before. Or I don't know because I never went to the website. And you'll go to you'll click on this <laughs> on this link and you'll see we have some items with the Cinematary logo for sale. You could buy there are our t-shirts for men and women. There is a laptop sticker, which you could buy like a pack of 20 of them for like five bucks, which is crazy. Then there is a keychain if uh, if you're still into the 90s. And a bumper sticker. Uh, or if you still have keys, <laughs> to, yeah, that's true. Um, but uh, but yeah, you can get you can get all of those items on the Cinematary website. Uh, you Jeez. buy them through the website Zazzle, and we get a little bit of the proceeds. But yeah, we would appreciate just we get like fifty cents to a dollar of the proceeds. Again, we don't want your money, but you know, it'd be nice. Yeah, yeah, we don't really want your money, but I th- but I, I think that. It'll be cool if you're a fan of the podcast. I think like a laptop sticker would be a nice. We want you to wear our logo on your stuff. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Tattoo your our logo on your body. We will pay for it. We'll pay for (laughs) cemetery tattoos. Um, Also, I don't own keys. I open my doors with an iPad. Put a sticker on your iPad. That's true. We do need phone cases. (laughs) We should we should make phone. We, that, that'll cases. be the next level. We need phone well, but cases. Let's, if, if, if people, no, we, we could we've that already up. talked about that. We're not going to do that. Uh, but <laughs> fidget spinners, <laughs> fidget spinners, right. and phone cases. Um, you want to you want to start the, <laughs> yes, the movie we swap? We are. We are going to do it. <laughs> let's do it. Uh, we're going to start with my pick, which I picked for Andrew. Let me let me preface that I started with picking Sausage Party, but I was like, honestly, I'm <laughs> disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> we could have we could have uh, had that conversation that it would have been it would have been interesting but I, mean, I don't really like sausage party either so you know uh but yeah but but my pick for andrew was the 2007 film by david fincher zodiac uh it stars jake gyllenhaal robert downey jr mark ruffalo brian cox um, Chloe Sevigny, yeah, there's a lot of people. And Anthony Edwards, John Carroll Lynch, All the people, uh, and it really. takes place. It's, it's a very long movie. It's about two and a half hours and two forty five. Two forty five, and yeah, and, and yeah. probably the first part of it is is more. It's taking place in the late sixties, early seventies, where the Zodiac killings are happening in 
in uh, Northern California, and it's kind of following the San Francisco Chronicle and, and their crime reporter played by Robert Downey Jr. as they try to kind of track the killings as well as the, you know, the kind of the San Francisco police uh, with the, the main detective played by Mark Ruffalo. And then the second part of the of the movie is, is kind of focusing on uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's character. He is a cartoonist for the Chronicle, and he becomes just obsessed with the Zodiac Killer and, and is kind of trying to decode the whole the whole message and, and, and figure out what happened um, and that kind of is the it's the, it's the, it's the it, it takes part in the for most of the second part and kind of ends the movie but I, I picked this for Andrew because one I think we talked about it in the panic room episode where we talked about David Fincher I, I think this is the only David Fincher movie you haven't seen no, there are still a couple others. I need to watch Seven, and I need to watch Girl with the Dragon. Okay. But this one, I, I feel... Oh, I haven't seen the game either. There's a lot of stuff. Yeah, the game's good. Um, but I picked this one because I know this is this is yeah. probably one of my favorite... This is probably my top Fincher movie. Uh, I know this this one is just... For me, it's it's very... It, I just kind of love that... that um, Obsession with obsession, uh, especially with when it, when it becomes more about Jake Gyllenhaal's character. Uh, he plays a lot with he gets to play a lot with his kind of Hitchcockian uh, uh, upbringings. He he likes to, you know, there, there's that one sequence late in the film where Jake Gyllenhaal's character goes to this this old projectionist's house, and it is probably one of the most terrifying sequences I, I've seen in a, in a movie in, in some time. That, that, that just absolutely, like, scares the <laughs> shit out of me. Um, but yeah, I, I really, I think that, I love how the, the kind of plants you in this world of, of the, you know, 60s, 70s San Francisco and and just with the costumes and the look and the, you know, just everything about it, it feels like you're implanted in this period of time. And I love how how he just kind of crafts these these multi layers of 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 you know characters but but andrew i'm curious what you thought of zodiac oh i'm also curious if there's any particular reason why you picked it for me specifically like um is it just that it's a movie that you love that's kind of a gap in my movie knowledge or was there something specific about it that you wanted to see bounce off of me um yeah i was kind of curious just to see how you would uh you would respond to some of the uh to, to, I guess the sum of what this movie's presenting, the, the kind of you know how, uh, how you know a, a, you know how you would respond to some of these characters, how you would respond to kind of how Fincher um, frames and, and sets up this movie. He in in, in the the different kind of sections that he he cuts it into, and I like how I, I love the. That it all kind of it, there's all kind of this connective tissue, but it, it feels like he kind of takes it into different wavelengths. He takes it up and down, and and, and moves and, and is constantly moving it. It seems like he's just kind of constantly moving it around and and able to to still keep this this kind of central this central theme of of, of obsession, but but is able to kind of. Uh, clue in on on different forms of it whether it's through da- uh, robert denny jr's character or mark ruffalo's character or jake gyllenhaal's character or just you know just kind of just some even smaller characters i think that it's I, I was curious to see how you would respond to that to, to just kind of this mass um this kind of epic quality that that fincher goes for yeah it's just so big yeah 
so many, so many people, so much stuff, so much time. Um, but yeah, thank you for recommending it to me because I really liked Zodiac, and it's a movie that uh, I've checked out from the library before. Didn't get around to it mostly because it is kind of an intimidatingly big movie, right? Not only for the length, but also this is definitely a movie that has a big reputation. Um, and I approach that with a little bit of trepidation because I know that um, a lot of the the crowd around Zodiac often, not always, uh, but often is kind of the crowd that takes a lot of stock in like the IMDb top 250, you know, like you got your Fight Club fanboys and, and David Fincher has kind of un, un, uh, um, with, without, without his own um, <laughs> desire, he has kind of gotten wrapped up in that whole culture just accidentally. Um, but, I mean, as soon as I started watching it, all of those you know, um, misconceptions kind of fell away. I I thought that it was really enjoyable, even though it is two hours and 45 minutes, you really don't feel the length. It's a very smooth watch. Um, and it, in a way kind of reminded me of a movie that Nathan and I watched recently, uh, Michael Mann's heat, uh, because after heat, I remember saying to Nathan, like, that's a movie that really needs to be three hours. Like it has to have this room to breathe and this room for you to feel like this, this zen-like clarity throughout the film. Um, and I, I definitely felt like the runtime added to the experience of Zodiac, specifically with how they, it's this slow ramping up of tension to the point where you don't really get your protagonist revealed until maybe the last 45 minutes or so. Like Jake Gyllenhaal is always kind of there, but... Yeah, he's he's kind of minimal in the in the first portion. Like like I said, it's it's more right. Robert Downey Jr. and Mark Ruffalo's movie. Right. And uh, I will say, quick side note, I was amused by how much Jake Gyllenhaal's character reminded us reminded me of our mutual friend John McCamus. <laughs> I don't know if anyone else feels <laughs> that, but he's kind of like this meek Boy Scoutish cartoonist who's kind of like I can very see that. quiet and very pleasant and, and very smart all at the same time. I don't know, just a lot of he his drinks. He what? You should get you should get John one of those. What are the, I forgot the special drink he oh, gets when like he goes out with Robert Downey Jr. Hawaiian looking drink. Yeah, that's that's like the one thing that I felt like maybe didn't match with John because John would yeah. just order whiskey, you know. But anyways, people who don't know yeah. all of us personally are very bored by that side note. Um. But the first two hours of the movie really feel like exposition for those last 45 minutes. And I think that you could view that as an insult, like, oh, this is a movie that takes two hours to get going. But I really don't mean it that way. Like, I think that the, the two hours leading up to that really makes the last 45 much more intense. Like you were saying, Zach, there's that, that really crazy scene that, you know, if it came earlier in the movie might not have the same impact where Jake Gyllenhaal goes to the projectionist house um, and he gets invited to the projectionist basement and like your skin yeah your skin just crawls in that moment and if you didn't have the two hours worth of context of why that might be a terrifying experience I don't think it would work in quite the same way Um, and I think that you have such an emotional connection to Jake Gyllenhaal's character by the time you get to that moment in the film uh, to the point where that theme of obsession really pays off because you've seen people just like pour over all this evidence. David Fincher has just given you this information dump for such a long time and you kind of get in the same mindset of those characters because you yourself are just kind of meticulously combing through all of this data and all this evidence in your mind. Um, And there's definitely a... 
a direction that David Fincher wants to push you towards in terms of like solving the mystery, but there are still like a lot of loose ends left unexplored and a lot of different directions that could have gone. And so it really does keep you guessing the whole time. And, and once you start following Jake Gyllenhaal in the last 45 minutes, I think it gets really tense. Um, and to make a couple other comparisons, a couple other things that I was thinking of while watching the film, aside from Heat, um, I was thinking of uh, Brian De Palma's The Black Dahlia, which actually came out a year prior to Zodiac, 2006. And it's just crazy how different of an approach Fincher takes than Brian De Palma does in that movie. Like both of them are taking these huge, famous cold cases and trying to kind of solve them retroactively through a movie. But whereas Fincher is just like so obsessed with the information of the case and the evidence and just like, taking you through all the possible avenues that that case could be solved through. Brian De Palma is much more interested in like giving you all of the backs, like the personal backstories of the detective solving the case to the point where the case becomes this like really distant abstract thing that you really don't know very much about at all. And so whenever it comes back up in the climax of the film, you kind of don't care about the case at all, even though the machinations of the movie kind of want you to. And I just thought that this worked so profoundly better than that movie. And I was also thinking about this as kind of a, a journalism thriller, sort of like Spotlight won Best Picture a couple of years back. And it also shares Mark Ruffalo as a lead. Um, but I think that this is much more uh, cinematic than Spotlight, much more engaging of a story. Well, I was going to ask, uh, one of the things I was thinking about today in preparation for this was, again, kind of the Fincher-Hitchcock connection. Um, and I feel like probably the closest movie uh, of Hitchcock's that you could relate to this would be Vertigo. I mean, I don't yeah. know if you see anything with that. I mean, especially with the length of the movie and the way it's structured, where the the central conflict of Vertigo doesn't really get revealed until the last 30 minutes or so of the movie once you start to see the obsession of Jimmy Stewart's character come to full fruition. And, you know, just you mentioning that, I, it was not a connection that I had made while watching the movie, but there are a lot of uh, connections, I guess, you could make with uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's character in Zodiac and Jimmy Stewart's here, um, especially, like, in terms of their relationships. I mean, there's it's kind of an opposite um, correlation, but um, Jimmy Stewart's character is so obsessed with this woman that he kind of becomes a monster. And Jake Gyllenhaal is so obsessed with the case that his relationship with Chloe Sevigny's character gets really profoundly broken. And uh, I, I loved how David Fincher used Chloe Sevigny's character, who I would like to add another side note, at one point is wearing a turtleneck and overalls and a cardigan all at the same time. All three of those things are different colors. And I was like, yes, Chloe Sevigny. I don't know how you're pulling this off, <laughs> but you are pulling this off right now. Um, but there's some great moments where, where Fincher uses Chloe Sevigny almost as like a prop. Um, to show the, the the physical and the emotional distance that is growing between her and Jake Gyllenhaal. Like there's a moment, I guess, right around the two hour mark of the movie where Jake Gyllenhaal gets a call from somebody who's going to give him a tip about the Zodiac killer. And he's just in the kitchen alone with his wife. 
and for reasons that are not explained, grabs the telephone and like turns the corner to have this conversation away from his wife. And there's really no reason why his wife can't be in the room for this conversation. But the fact that he does that, like just gives you another like subtlety to that relationship and how this is all affecting Jake Gyllenhaal emotionally. Um, and then there's an, another great conversation between them where Jake Gyllenhaal is like not in the frame for most of the conversation because he's kind of become this absent, neglectful partner. Um, so yeah, I mean, it uses a lot of um, cool cinematic techniques to to tell this emotional story, but also like this very information-heavy nonfiction story. And I, I found it very gripping. Um, so I'm I'm very grateful that you recommended it, Zach. Great. Uh, all right, our next our next movie swap is Lydia and her pick for Nathan. I threw a wrench in the system and I picked a movie for Nathan that I haven't actually seen before. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So I guess both of our reactions are going to be surprised. But uh, when I was thinking about movies to pick for you, Nathan, I I went through your watch list first. And then I was also thinking about things that I'm just interested in and want to know about. (laughs) And uh, so... Well, I picked uh, Cruising by William Friedkin, who did The Exorcist and The French Connection. What are you doing, Zach? <laughs> uh, in the 70s, and I'm really big in like, American New Wave stuff, and I don't know, Nathan, if you're as necessarily interested in that sort of thing, but I was curious... Um, I like Friedkin a lot. Mm-hmm. I really like Sorcerer and The French Connection. I have not seen The Exorcist. I've seen a couple of his other films too, like um, Jade from the 1990s, a really terrible erotic thriller with the guy from CSI Miami. Uh, to Live and Die in L.A., also fantastic movie. Um, I should have picked The Exorcist, but I... <laughs> Wow. Uh, but I'm curious to how you reacted to cruising. I mean, uh, how does it fit in with the rest of your opinion of Freakin's filmography? Yeah, I have, it's a, belt, just, it's a it's blind spot. It's a weird spot. movie. Uh, okay, cruising, Al Pacino. It's a murder mystery. Al Pacino has to go undercover in the like leather bar scene in New York in 1980s. And I guess it's a weird little period piece because also this is right before... Um, HIV AIDS became like a very big concern in that community. And I guess all the bars don't that, like, that's not a scene really anymore. Maybe I don't know. Uh, um, it's, I can't it's help but wonder. Yeah, definitely very controversial. I can't help but wonder if maybe you picked this just because sometimes I have an interest in problematic or controversial movies. Um, which this definitely is since when it was being made and when it came out, it was met with a lot of protests and an alleged 40 minutes were cut from the movie and possibly destroyed by United Artists that depicted just like very graphic sexuality in the... um, in the leather bars and... Freakin um, actually filmed leather... (laughs) Freakin actually filmed. Those weren't extras. They were the patrons of the bars, I believe he said. And apparently that stuff doesn't really add, like, a a lot of plot to the movie. It just kind of 
makes it more ambiguous than it already is um, and seems to maybe kind of add more questions into what's going on internally with Al Pacino's character, which I would be really interested to see that, but unfortunately it seems to, to not exist. Um, I uh, had been wanting to see this movie for a while, so I am kind of glad you picked it um, just because it gave me an excuse to finally watch it. Um, from the opening, which... The, the opening title is just the word cruising, like in very large letters scrolling across the screen. I was already kind of like, damn, this this movie, uh, I'm, I'm into it, I'm on board. Um, just because of that really bold title choice. Although it is the kind of thing where I was like, man, I wish I was watching this in a theater and not on my like 10 inch TV. Um, so I think kind of the, uh, the first part of the movie I, uh, um, was really into, it's a very interesting performance from Al Pacino. He looks very pale and kind of like this, he's like this sickly white color and it's strange. I don't know him coming from from the Godfather, um, you know, being in which he's kind of very composed, very calm in that movie, I think, in those, in those movies, and um, very put together. Um, but it's before he became known kind of for, for a shtick and for, for a lot of yelling and really hammy acting, which doesn't really start happening, I think, until Scarface. Um, this is still kind of in that much quieter mode of, uh, of the Godfather. And he's doing, you know, he's, he's doing a lot of looking. That's really kind of what a lot of the movie is. And I'm sure based on the descriptions of the missing 40 minutes, that is just 40 minute more minutes of him looking at other people engaged in sexual acts. So I, you know, it's no secret that I'm a fan of movies that are about watching and that are about looking. I mean, I love Brian De Palma. So I was really into the movie um, from that angle. It's, uh, um, I feel like Al Pacino just becomes this kind of like blank um, cipher. I read one review um, by Dan Salit and he described him as kind of opaque, which I thought was an interesting way to, to describe Al Pacino in this movie, just because, um, it, you know, this, this movie was criticized a lot and is still criticized. And I think there's maybe something to those criticisms, even though I don't entirely agree with them. But it is interesting that in this movie, the chief of police is like, hey, you have to go undercover. We are basically pimping you out so to pick up this serial killer. You know, you are a seemingly straight guy in a relationship with a woman. We don't know anything about your previous sexual history. You're a police officer. Um, and Al Pacino is just kind of like, yeah, sure, I'll do it. And doesn't really like, he doesn't groan or complain or like really make a big deal about it and the movie makes some points kind of about the macho culture of of the police um 
the uh, the opening scene of the movie is two police officers who should be kind of you know staking out a block, um, picking up two prostitute two uh, two male prostitutes, um, or at least like gender ambiguous prostitutes. Um, and so, and then there's this really interesting scene where Al Pacino goes to a bar one night and everyone in the bar is dressed like a cop and they're all just boning down dressed like cops. There are these giant handcuffs on the wall. Um, and like, because he is the one person not dressed like a cop, the bartender or bouncer comes up to him and says, Hey, are you a cop? We want you to leave. Um, so obviously it's kind of making, you know, these, these really, uh, valid, I think, and insightful points about that kind of macho culture. So I think it's interesting that Al Pacino's character doesn't really verbally or, or, or visibly or vocally express those kind of concerns. There are some things in his uh, relationship with his girlfriend played by Karen Allen, who I think this is the only movie I've seen her in that wasn't an Indiana Jones movie. Um, it kind of makes it seem like maybe he is trying to compensate sexually with her for having to be around all these um these gay men and maybe he feels kind of like he's 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 kind of questioning things so he tries to up his game with her to quell those questions in his mind and really that's kind of what a lot of the movie comes down to is it seems like he may or may not be questioning himself at the same time it also potentially alludes to the fact that he is maybe the serial killer um it's it's this it's this ambiguous question but i honestly i to me that was sort of the least interesting part of the movie i felt like it there i I kind of felt like there wasn't enough of that and when it gets to this point in the movie where it becomes more ambiguous and you start learning about the person who is probably the actual killer um there's some stuff about that character who's not even really much of a character, some some kind of tidbits given about his life and some issues with his father, but it's just kind of there and sort of shoehorned in, and that, to me, was not very interesting. To me, honestly, the most interesting stuff was just kind of Al Pacino watching and looking and, and observing, um, and Friedkin shoots it in a very detached way, um, Perhaps kind of the most involved m- moment is this scene where Al Pacino and this guy uh, do ether, and it, like the it gets the the camera kind of starts getting shaky, and there's some effects going on where it feels very the color pops when he uh, yeah, and it's face. so it's just kind of like it gets very weird, and there's a, the the cutting intensifies, and it's starting to cut to a guy who's like chained to a cross, getting anally fisted, and that is one of the 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 few moments in the leather bars where I think that it, it it moves away from a very detached and very kind of rigid style. Um, honestly, I think it's it's one of the most interesting things, like this. You know the 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 movie is kind of questioning things about about um, 
rigid sexual binaries maybe or or also kind of the 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 role of the cop um and especially the undercover cop who is both kind of observer and participant and is trying to maybe blur the lines between these boundaries i think it's maybe worth talking about this movie almost as uh, blurring the lines between documentary and fiction just because like lydia said all of the extras in this scene were 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 real people who you you know went to these bars um i it's kind of uh i honestly i i didn't really think about this while i was watching the movie but i started thinking about it after just because i was thinking a little bit about aids during this movie and wondering maybe how many of those people didn't live for that much longer um so i think it is kind of interesting in that in that regard as something that is both very much a document of a specific place and time, even if it is the Hollywood version and kind of glossy and sleazy and, and obviously um, artificial. Uh, There's also some weird moments that I don't really know what to do with. Like there's a scene where they bring a potential suspect in for questioning who, um, was about to engage in intercourse with Al Pacino, obviously because Al Pacino is undercover. They bring him in for questioning too and pretend that he's not a cop. And there's just this this guy who just appears. And none of the cops respond to him. Like at, yeah. all. at all, this guy just wearing a jock strap and a and a cowboy hat, like this huge black guy, like the only I think like black character in the movie who is given you know more than just kind of like a background role, and he just walks up, slaps Al Pacino, and Al Pacino's like, "Why'd you do that?" And then he leaves the room, and then Al Pacino goes into another room, and he's just this guy's just sitting on a chair, and Al Pacino's like, "Why'd you do that?" And then takes his cowboy hat and throws it out the window, and then the guy comes in and slaps the other, the actual suspect, and then is never seen again, never mentioned again. The cops don't acknowledge him, like Lydia said, and it's just kind of this strange, like. I, I appreciated it, but I didn't really know if I was supposed to to laugh or just be kind of startled or or, or what. Um, there's also another moment that I liked a lot, just connecting more to the watching and the looking, where there's a kind of a peep show porno that that two guys are watching and one of them is the killer and the killer stabs the other guy and his blood like spurts on the on the screen um and i really liked that that moment um and there's also some great stuff i'm always a sucker in movies for mirrors just because movies are a mirror so when a mirror shows up hey, that's that's important. So I always take notice of that. And there's a moment in the beginning in the first killing scene where two men are beginning to kind of fondle each other and it's just filmed through, like filmed into the mirror. Yeah, and then there's there's a brief moment where Al Pacino is lifting weights looking into a mirror, um, which, you know, adds pretty obviously to the film's commentary on on masculine masculinity um and and in the mirror yeah yeah and and um and it's so much about performance you know so i that's really where it comes in uh lydia i'm really interested to hear your response to this movie yeah um 
I'm glad I picked this for you, actually, because you approach movies in a way different way than I do, because, I mean, I'm a sucker for, like, auteur theory and stuff, and so I was spending a lot of time thinking about how this fits into just everything else I've seen from Freakin, who I don't really understand. I, I guess he wouldn't really be an auteur. I can't find, like, a through line through all of his works, because uh, he creates these, like, really striking visual images. You were talking about the scene where Pacino does ether and there's like a American flag sort of thing too that <laughs> keeps lighting up uh, and he's got similar like just really shocking images in Sorcerer or uh, The Exorcist or Killer Joe. Um, this movie seemed very brown to me. <laughs> yeah I definitely agree with I, I, that and <laughs> Even though there are visually striking moments, they're not necessarily movies where I feel like... Style, like... Yeah, it's not like you don't think about them necessarily for their style, even though they have good images. I feel like it's almost more kind of the 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 structure of it like you know you, the the thing everybody knows the French Connection for is the car chase which is really all about the 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 precision of the editing um, and this movie has a very elliptical structure which is partly because of all the stuff that's missing and partly just I think what he was going for so it's so much about the structure which is one of the things that I was kind of like back and forth on because it just was a little and you mentioned Brian De Palma and you like he's got that very clear through line of voyeurism and just looking at people and things and I mean this movie has that but not necessarily the rest of Freakin's movies so it was just, it felt like a weird anomaly to me and I'm glad I watched it because it's also I'm interested in this idea and I think I'll talk about this with Andrew of like putting transgressive acts on screen like what is it for like is he just filming these leather bars because it's freaky sex and the mainstream audience like maybe like wouldn't get a chance to get into that world and is he making a comment about like Pacino's character or is he just filming to be filming and get a rise out of the audience and sometimes like I that line's not really yeah me. me too just because there are those um, moments it felt really expletive yeah like there are definitely um like the, I think for me, the one that really stands out is the anal fisting scene as like the scene where it's really kind of maybe played a little bit for discomfort. Um, and also there are, I mean, obviously, you know, in 1980s America, maybe the, a lot of people going to see this movie would not have access <laughs> to information about um, certain mm -hmm. gay subcultures. So there's like a really clunky expository scene where Al Pacino goes into a store and asks what the different handkerchiefs mean. And the, the guy at the store is like, oh, that one in your left pocket, you know, that means you want a blowjob. The other one means you'll give one. This one mm -hmm. means you like golden showers. This one means you're going to give golden showers. <laughs> and police. he just like explains all of these different colors of bandanas. Um, and it's just really like it, it, it feels uh, maybe a little dated just because I get, which is not necessarily to its fault, just because that's, again, information that may not have been immediately accessible or known by everyone seeing this movie. Um, whereas now. It's also kind of interesting just as. You know, yeah. 
No, no, oh, go sorry. ahead. Just as a document. Because, again, I don't know if this subculture really exists in the same yeah, way anymore. Because... I, <laughs> I feel like it pro... Like, it, you know, I think things definitely do, but I feel like the kind of freewheeling sexual world where you just have like a hundred people just out on the street all looking to hook up, like I feel like that... And like no concern at all. Like AIDS is still over the horizon yet. Also, I have the Wikipedia page for this movie open on my computer, and I didn't even really think about this, but... It says, the title is a play on words with a dual meaning, as cruising can describe police officers on patrol and also cruising for sex. So it goes more to kind of like the blurring of, of different boundaries and, and, and binaries. And I think that opening scene where the, the uh, two officers force the uh, prostitutes to, to give them head uh, as kind of indicative of that... Well, it's interesting because the prostitutes are also dressed as cops. So yeah, it's like, yeah. are they harassing them because if they're offended at like this take on their culture and like this weird reflexive thing? And it also is like or all what, of the, the the the, the um, gay characters in this movie are all like really into the kind of police, all like borderline Nazi fetish leather stuff you know wearing the like motorcycle caps and the real kind of kenneth anger scorpio rising type stuff which is very you know really kind of i think playing off of those archetypes of police officer and and really masculine identities um so there is that fishy boundary where it's like who who really is the who who really are the the fetishists here you know, is it people dressed like cops having sex or is it the, the, the cops who, you know, claim to be men who are comfortable in their identities and whatever? Um, yeah. So. All right. Um, cruising. Uh, all right. Well, I guess our next our next pairing is Andrew and his pick for Lydia. Yeah, so um, I really appreciate the fact that we get to do these movie swaps because every once in a while something really just clicks in my head and I really want to force a specific person to watch something. So um, I really wanted to specifically force Lydia to watch the movie Belle de Jour by one of my favorite directors, Louis uh, Louis Bunuel, Um, for a number of reasons, um, one of which is just that both of us are, are very interested in feminist theory and how those ideas get um, handled on screen. And we've also had a lot of uh, conversations off mic, not necessarily about movies, but about like feminism and, and sex work and porn and all this stuff. By the way, this section of the podcast is probably going to get not safe for work just because of the nature of the movie. But you just listen oh, to Oh, I already said so the words fine. anal fisting. <laughs> <You already laughs> anal fisting like twice. You just talked to, <laughs> we just, oh, what are you man. talking um, about? It's already so been there. Belle du Jour is a movie that I really wanted Lydia's specific take on because I felt like it could have gone either way. This is a movie that I thought Lydia would totally eat up or be completely repulsed by. So, um, Quick summary before we get into the answer to that question. Um, This is 
a French film by a Spanish director, Louis Benuel, again, uh, and it stars uh, Catherine Deneuve uh, as the wife of a um, French aristocrat. She lives a very comfortable life of luxury, um, but the relationship between her and her husband is very cold, very distant. You get the feeling that um, she for some reason, doesn't feel 100% comfortable around him, especially when it comes to the topic of sex. Um, and kind of out of the blue, 10 or 15 minutes into the movie, she decides that she is going to uh, become a sex worker by day. She finds this, this brothel at this very nice apartment in town, um, all run by women, and she just signs up to be a prostitute by day, and, you know, aristocratic wife by night, um, unbeknownst to her husband. Uh, and this feels very out of character for Catherine Deneuve because she does seem so frigid for, the, mo for the, the beginning of the movie. But there are also a lot of strange, surrealistic sequences, as you often get with Louis Bunuel movies, um, where things, reality begins to break um, in, in ways that you do not expect because he often plays the surrealism scenes in this movie um, straight, just like they would be uh, in any other scene. But then all of a sudden, like, she's being whipped by carriage drivers or something. And you kind of have to do a double take and, and assess whether or not you think this is happening in the reality of the film or not. Um, and if it's not, what does that tell you about the, the psychology of the character? So there's a lot to unpack here. Um, again, I feel like this could go either way with Lydia. So, Lydia? Um, I wouldn't necessarily say ate it up, but I was not repulsed. And I think what helped a lot with that are those surreal, dreamlike sequences. Because uh, I guess at the core of it, this is a movie about a woman who, like, trying to explore her sexuality and does not have the language or like education like resources to do that in a way that is very helpful in the long run um, I got the Criterion version from the library and I dug into the supplemental material and they had these kind of two feminist uh, theorists who I did not look up to tell you on the podcast uh, that it, they've spent a lot of time talking about the female masochist and and the opening scene with the carriage driver like it's her being humiliated and that's what she wants but she does not know how to ask for that at all and so kind of connecting that to starting sex work at this brothel I mean, she's still, I can't tell, like, she looks down on it. Like, it's, I think she feels that it's actually very degrading work to be doing, even if... But it feels like she's a character, and this is very weird to talk about, but it almost feels like she wants to be degraded. Yeah, the female right? ma masochistic tendencies, and she doesn't mm -hmm. know how to, like, do that in, in a like, relationship with her husband or whomever, whomever and, like, con like, consensually, but it is consensually because she does consent to do this work. But, and it's odd because you can kind of tell me, like, maybe she's repulsed by it, but it's not necessarily presented that way by the film, even. Uh, 
the women, the woman who runs the brothel is like very kind and just like, hey, this is what we do. And I pay well. Very classy. Yeah. They play a lot of gin rummy. <laughs> Downtime. The the daughter walks in at one at one point and they like start talking about the daughter's report card like in the middle of this brothel while transactions are happening in the background. And there's yeah. like the lady who makes the Very beds. Very much not a surrealistic moment. That's just what's um, happening. <laughs> uh, and I don't know. This probably says a lot more about me, but I also appreciated that the work these women was doing, like kind of just an economic reality which i feel like maybe a lot of sex work is in the real world uh one of the girls is like yeah i have a boyfriend and he knows that i do this but i gotta pay bills or he can't work <laughs> yeah. so shrug but again this probably says a lot more about me it feels like the men are presented like super oh, creepy oh yeah uh the dot well the daughter who walks in like with the report card one of the customer likes like tries to hit on her it's definitely 12 or something and it's like, oh. Mm. I also feel like more so than the, the guys who show up at the brothel, a lot of the male characters outside of that context are really creepy as well. Like the um, the, the friend, yeah, who, who she has various conversations with and like is always trying to hit on her and like totally crossing the line in every like very public context that they see each other in. And like the relationships that she has with the men at the brothel are, are much more, oh, I don't know. The it feels like it's planks by some sort of rules. Yeah. They know what, mm -hmm. they know what they're there for. Um, like there are no social rules kind of governing that interaction. <laughs> like no one's pretending. The thing with the friend was interesting to me. It's, uh, her husband's friend who, a, I would be super pissed off if my husband <laughs> thought this was a good guy to have as a friend because he's gross. Uh, but uh, he's like always hitting on her, but he's only hitting on her because he thinks she's like Madonna whore sort of thing. Like the minute he finds he out that she her. works yeah. here, he's like, uh, you're, you're not appealing to me. And mm, that's highlighting a pretty gross aspect and it takes a lot away from Catherine the news character um not her whole problem but part of her problem is like she doesn't have the freedom to explore her desires in any way because she has she is in this like restricted role um there we go <laughs> yeah i mean you would you would think of this character as existing and having a lot of privilege right and just like being this very powerful figure in her society but i mean you know, relatively speaking, she is kind of confined to her social role and, like you said, doesn't have a language for her own desires, doesn't have any sort of outlet. She, her entire purpose is just to kind of wait at home for her husband to come back. Um, so despite the money that she has the possession of, she doesn't really have freedom, mm -hmm. so to speak. And Another thing that was interesting from the Criterion stuff is they had uh, interviews with the screenwriter and Catherine Deneau. And the screenwriter spent a lot of time talking about the ending, which is where this kind of like reality and surrealism like literally are on screen together at the same time as the superposition shot that opens the scene. Um, and the screenwriter and it seems like a lot of critical thought about this movie are very fascinated by this idea because the friend who like comes and 
just dishes on the wife to the husband who's been in an accident. And so it's this ambiguous, like, okay, now he knows what his wife has been up to behind his back, but he can't do anything about it. And she, like, they, they, they still can't communicate to, with each other. But then the return of this, like, carriage noise, the fantasy that opens the movie, the comes in. Right. And that's the finale. Yeah. And also, like, sounds of cats <laughs> meowing, too. Like, for some reason, there are just random references to cats throughout the movie. Like, in the first scene where she's getting tied up and whipped by the carriage drivers, she says to her husband, I love you, please don't let the cats out. And they're, like, in the middle of a field somewhere. I guess that's your your first clue that this is not happening in reality, because that is just, like, a very dream logic thing for someone to say. But I also, this is something that still baffles me about this movie, even though I love it and think it's perfect. Like, what the heck is going on with cats in Belle de Jour? Like, actual cats on screen? I don't think so. I don't so. think so. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, it's like maybe a weird symbolic thing, but Binwell also doesn't do, like, the typical, like, Freudian symbolism stuff. It's all weird no. shit. Um, but the screenwriter <laughs> says that he thinks the ending is, like, maybe a happy one and then says it's tragic and i'm like that's pretty fascinating her husband becomes like comatose or something at the end describe that for our listeners like what exactly happens one of her patrons from the brothel falls in love with her and then tracks her down in the her quote-unquote real life because she's been using an assumed name obviously to kind of keep those worlds separate and but he tracks her down um and like tries to murder her husband because he thinks the only reason they can't be together is because of her husband and not because so i guess that's the exception to the rule of the men who are her patrons being more mostly respectful like this is the moment in the movie where it kind of turns and and shows you that this is not all you know uh, uh, nice and and respectable as it had it's not like all business. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, it's also the, like mm, she's using him for her own repressed desires that she's not able to communicate to anybody. She's a very and, passive character. Yeah, she's not in love with him back. I don't believe. But again, like very passive and just lets him believe because it's like a, he's a thug and he doesn't have teeth and <laughs> so. I apologize about doing this, but uh, in terms of time, we need to wrap it up. Were you on our episode last year about um, Discrete Charm of the Bourgeoisie? I was not. That would probably be the next step, I would say. Okay. Good to know. So, anyways, I'm glad you liked it and we're not repulsed by it. Um, Thank you for suggesting. We will talk it. more when we have more time off mic. Um, is that is that it for part one, Zach? Yeah, we're gonna take a short break. Um, we'll be back with part two with our last two swaps after this. Hey guys, this is Zach. Uh, we're taking a quick break in the show to uh, talk about a 
something that could really help the Knoxville area. As you know, Cinematary is from Knoxville, and, and we're always happy to help the film community here. Uh, William Mahaffey of the Knoxville uh, Film Horror Film Festival, who you've probably heard on the podcast before, he's a he's a great friend of ours, um, is with me. He's going to be talking about the Central Cinema Project. Uh, William, why don't you real briefly explain to, to the listeners what, what this project is? Uh, well, um, some friends and I, you know, we've run the Knoxville Horror Film Fest here for about nine years and we've started doing a lot of other screenings in town like at Iams Nature Center and um, we've wanted to do a theater for a really long time and uh, just based on the climate in Knoxville and talking to people it seemed like now was a good time to do it there's a lot of growth out of the downtown area into uh, other parts of Knoxville and so we started working on it late last year and things have come around really quick and we found a space and so we're trying to raise money on GoFundMe to help us do the theater um, and we're already we've already raised about pretty close to 10000 and we're actually going to sign the lease next week and we're looking for investors and looking into doing some loans uh, to help make it happen but the, uh, the crowdfunding has definitely been super helpful and helped us get on our feet and we've you know been able to pay for our business license and a lot of other little things that um helps us get the ball rolling yeah uh so i i guess is the theater you know the overall goal is you know hoping to be kind of an independent movie space or you know a revival house like what what are you guys hoping to to be showing once the 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 thing is completed uh, well, it's going to be uh, one screen. Uh, I, I guess the most common term is a repertory cinema where you just show like show like older films. But we do want to show newer independent films, too. Um, we're not going to be showing the same thing that like uh, there's a Regal here that shows independent stuff. And we probably won't be showing the same thing that they do. We're only showing stuff that doesn't come here. Like there's a lot of films that because they're on video on demand regal and carmike won't show them so they never make it to knoxville so we're going to show a lot of stuff like that and you know classics from all the way back to the beginning of cinema through 80s cult movies uh, you know up until movies may have just come out a couple years ago that we really loved and we didn't we thought they didn't get the attention they deserved so we wanted to highlight them so and another thing we're going to be doing with our programming is teaming up with local groups um for instance, I actually talked, you know, I, I talked with you and uh, some of the other cemetery people earlier about maybe you guys doing some screenings there and then doing, you know, talks afterwards or maybe recording a podcast afterwards. We've also talked with some other local film fests uh, who want to do parts of their festival there, maybe do other screenings throughout the year. And um, a local writer named Kelly Robinson, who does, who's she's an expert on silent film and lost film. She's we're talking with her about doing a regular series. So we really want it to be, uh, you know, a big thing for the community where people can utilize the space for stuff that they want to show too. Yeah, definitely. I, I know. I, I I feel like I speak for the other cemeterians saying that that sounds like a you know fantastic idea. We you know we've ha- we would love to be doing stuff there, and and I know we've had a friend of the podcast, Darren. Hughes on he's with with public cinema you know it's it's good that that you know we there's a space to to be able to show all this stuff um so I guess real quickly as we as we finish up where if people are interested in helping out with this project where can they where can they go to donate or or just be involved um you can go to 
you can actually just type in Central Cinema Knox, K-N-O-X. That's our website, or will be our website, but currently it directs you to our GoFundMe. Or you can go to GoFundMe.com and search Central Cinema Knoxville. Uh, and then we have a Facebook account, a Twitter, and Instagram. And then um, because we did the Knoxville Horror Film Fest, and we've got a big following with that, we communicate a lot of the same information there. So if you're following either of those, you'll see how things are going. And like I said, we're up to 10K, just about. We're just under it, and our goal is 50K. So even if you only have 5 bucks, that helps out. Or if you just know people who are interested and tell them about it that is a huge help as well yeah definitely all right uh we'll make sure to add the link that william just gave into the description of this episode uh and we will also be you know tweeting it out and such so you're welcome to go to the cinema you know cemetery page or the website to to find that information as well uh william thank you so much though thank you yeah all right guys let's go back to the show with part two of episode 150 of Cinematary. Uh, we're going to continue our movie swap. Our next pairing is Nathan and his pick for Dylan. So, so I picked um, for, for Dylan um, the Yay. 1981 French film by one of my favorite directors, the late, great Jacques Rivette. Um, Le Pont du Nord is the name of the film, starring... Um, Bull uh, Auger and her daughter uh, Pascal Auger. Um, I think that is the correct pronunciation. I watched some pronunciation videos on YouTube. Um, That's not necessary. Earlier, you just go for it. So, go for it. Mm, uh, I, I I would at least like to to uh, box my way <laughs> through a word knowing. That I may be close to it. I don't know. Um, so the reason I, I just I don't ever look up I don't ever look up pronunciations. I just kind of go for it. You know, it's YOLO. We only live once. That type. Oh you know. God! <laughs> just go for it. Um, so for it. so uh, the reason why I picked this movie, um, <laughs> I've been hoping that Dylan um, would would watch uh, some films by Jacques Rivette. Um, they are. Most of his movies are a little bit hard to come by. There are not many that are widely available. I know Dylan had seen um, Paris Belongs to Us, right? He'd seen yeah. that one. Yeah, I'd seen that one. Because um, that was Criterion or whatever, right? Yeah. So it was the easiest, yeah. I guess. Yeah, it's out there on – It was well, it was on Hulu before, before a film struck. Um, you know, all that. Uh, so I kind of feel like uh, – I, I think that um, – well, I'd, I at least hoped that uh, 
Dylan would would respond to Rivette, um, just because for me, I feel like getting into his films was kind of the like another step on the expanding brain meme of my cinephilia. Um, seeing uh, his thirteen hour long film Out One in the winter of twenty fifteen was uh, a really a really important watershed moment for me. Um, because it made me think about a uh, narrative in a way that I never had before. I think the, the closest reference point, I'm not the, the first to make this comparison, but I think it is a good comparison nonetheless, mm. um, is, is to the works of Thomas Pynchon, where there's this great cloud of conspiracy going on around you and you are just in it and you don't really know what up or down is and you maybe are you maybe don't have a true sense of your surroundings or your bearings while you're watching it oh god but you don't have a point to the north you don't have yeah, a northern yeah. point to you're, and so you're <laughs> you're kind of trying to figure out where you're going um a lot of people and uh, myself included have s- compared what Jacques Rivette does as a director to like the dungeon master and dungeons and dragons where he sort of creates this scenario and, and sort of gets the clock running and then lets it unfold and then steps back. Um, his, his films are not necessarily, it's not necessarily something where I'm like, Oh wow, I should really screenshot this movie and like post it on Twitter. Like it is, well composed and visually striking but not in this kind of like whoa crazy way it's it's more it's almost it's almost um i think the absence or the lack to his movies is as important as what is what is there so i was hoping uh to to i i wanted to hear dylan's perspective on rivet and this was the first rivet movie i saw and is after paris belongs to us probably the second most accessible i think um so dylan i'm gonna pass the mic to you i want to hear how you felt yeah um i think that that aesthetic point um is interesting in this one too, just because yeah, it is. So the three that I've seen uh, as of right now is Paris belongs to us, uh, Duel, and uh, this one Le Pont de Nord. And this one is particularly interesting because after Duel for me, that one's like more of a fantasy and has a lot more popping colors going on, right? At least in terms of costuming, if nothing else. That this one is mostly natural light, right? Like they're mostly outside in this movie, um, which is, which is striking. I, I like the comparison a lot too, to like a game master. Um, and in this case, almost to loop it back around to the conspiracy theory thing is that you, uh, as you said, is you find yourself in it. Like the rules of the game end up like slowly revealing itself as you keep going forward or you hit bumps or obstacles. Right. And then you're like, Oh, Oh, does this mean this then? Oh God. Um, so, uh, did we uh, explain what this movie is kind of about? I mean, we talked about no. no I, 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 while you were talking, I was like, I should probably um, have said that. But basically, I think in its most basic form, this movie is about two women wandering around Paris. Um, one of them um, 
Marie has just gotten out of prison and she really does not want to go inside because she's been outside inside for so long. She just like can't, physically cannot go inside. So like Dolan said, basically the whole movie is outside. Um, and then Baptiste is this kind of weird childlike, um, yeah, bikers, homeless street child who claims to have like just been born I think at one point she says and like it really does kind of feel like she was just born the way that other characters talk to her and the way she says things um and there's this kind of mystery there's a man named uh, Julian that Marie is meeting with that she loves and there are maps and, <laughs> and yeah uh, yeah. Uh, uh, no, that's um, anything you need to add to that summary, Dylan. It, it is hard to explain the experience of watching this just a, a, a little bit getting into it because uh, back around to, again, this dungeon mastery comparison is that, you know, as you start, it feels like nothing exactly quote unquote is going on. You're introduced to both of those characters separately. Um Marie, as she's like in a truck bed, getting out and wandering around, and I guess eventually trying to uh, find Julian, um, and then uh, uh, Baptiste, who is just bringing on Babylon. I think was like her first words, and I don't know exactly yeah. what <laughs> she's up to, except that she's keenly aware of the lion statues in uh, in the city. Like she's just observing and observing, uh, absorbing all of the city that she can, uh, and then they end up colliding. Oh and she my keeps God. taunting a guy on a motorcycle. I could not with get her over motorcycle. that. <laughs> um, like she was, yeah. Uh, yeah uh, in relation to so, this guy was getting out a bike from uh, this uh, truck, this delivery truck that has like a dragon on the side, and. It's just this big, bigger bike than what uh, Baptiste is riding around in. And, like, as soon as she sees that, she just starts, like, primping and just, like, coming at this dude <laughs> with her tiny bike. And, yeah, no, it was... I thought that was a, a pretty good way to introduce her character in a silly way. I, I also think it's important to mention that there's a lot about dragons and monsters in this movie, even though there are no actual... Monsters oh, yeah. or dragons? Well, sort of. It's debatable. Um, there well, is fire breathing. There's yeah. a beast that breathes right. fire. Um, <laughs> and also, um, the Marie and Baptiste meet because they run into each other three times. And then Baptiste is like, hey, we keep running into each other. Yeah. It's fate. Let's just hang out for several days, just walking around. Right. Like, she has rules for engagement. Like, the first time they bump into each other and it's an accident. The mm -hmm. second time is chance. And the third time is fate. And fate dictates everything for Baptiste. So that kind of is like, I'm now imprinted on you. I'm yours and you're mine or something. Um, but so the first, the, and because I think this will become important later, uh, is uh, with Baptiste, the first time that sh they collide with... Uh, 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 Marie is when she's being distracted by looking behind her shoulder at, uh, at one of the lion statues that she's obsessed with. And then she collides in her mo uh, motorbike with Marie and then she's lost her motorbike. It's broken. And then, so she's just on foot for the rest of the movie. Um, but okay. How <laughs> this movie, 
I feel like I'm slightly at a disadvantage uh, not knowing the, like, layout of Paris. I think this movie does a good job, you know, getting you in there regardless. But there's something that I have to imagine is, like, either an even more of an enlightening experience or somehow even more obscuring. I'm on the line of whether or not you're Parisian and see this movie because basically this movie is like learning parts in the map of Paris, or like going to different parts of it because it starts in like these uh, really the beautiful part of Paris, uh, kind of around the Arc de Triomphe. Um, and then it slowly moves like into more um, just dilapidated and like destroyed rubble, basically. And <laughs> the way it gets you there is by following a conspiracy with uh, swapping briefcases and a game, the goose game overlaid over a spiraled map, which, you know, uh, uh, <laughs> I don't know, like, it, it, I get latched and hooked into it and it starts making sense just because you're following these characters. Like, yeah, it kind of is like that. But as it plays out, it subverts itself. Right, the rules that they thought they were playing by completely get a, a, a usurped by the end, even though it undoes them. So this goose game uh, that I think Marie explains to Baptiste, like right in the middle of the movie, like the end of or the beginning of day three. Uh, it's split into four days, and it's supposed to end, you know, at, at the end of like three nights and days or whatever, um, and. She explains that this map that they uh, find that uh, this mystery, this conspiracy, whatever it is happening, uh, is somehow following this rules of a child's game, this goose game, and that there's specific obstacles like the inn and the bridge um, uh, 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 and the grave that they have to go to to slowly make their way to the center of the map where the end of the game is or where the treasure may be. Um, and it... <laughs> It's funny that basically Marie explains that this is a that it's a game of chance uh, that's overlaid on what life is. So there's there's an intense tension uh, uh, of this movie. Sorry, of people's expectations of how things are, are going to go, and then how it actually unfurls, like uh, the difference between fate and chance colliding to one another because as soon as they start overlaying the rules of the game on top of life, they're kind of uh, causing it to occur in a self-fulfilling way. Um, and uh, I don't know how far to go with the, the spoiling of the ending, I guess. Just should I go for it, Nathan? Okay. It ends on Marie being shot by Julian, the, the guy she loves because I guess he slowly becomes a Max. And what a Max is, is like uh, these spy observer people who just like take notes on everybody and are everywhere, but they mostly seem like men. I don't think there's ever, there's, I mean, it's Max, right? That's why it's, so 
Uh, There's a lot about surveillance. Like fact, Baptiste yeah. throughout the movie keeps talking about yeah. surveillance. And I guess... And that helicopter noise. Yeah. And so there's it's just oh like a God. very paranoid movie. And I was thinking too, it's kind of uh, in the same way that in Eyes Wide Shut, um, which we talked about in December, you know, like newspaper headlines and signs in that movie kind of comment on the action. And in the same way, movie posters offer the same function. Like there will be a movie poster that will say something like the silence that kills or wide open spaces that somehow s- serves as a comment on the narrative. Yes. There's also a great scene at the beginning, like one of your, the first moments with Baptiste where there's a poster for Akira Kurosawa's Kagamusha and she like <laughs> attacks it. Um, About to stab that dude. It's just very strange, Um, and so and I I I really like how it just kind of it it turns this whole city space into a into something fantastical and into a weirdly meaningful, like into a board game. Like there's a lot of one of the things I was thinking about because the way Baptiste interacts with objects um, is like. yeah, like, like aggressively kind of, a lot of times, pro, you know, projects Seriously? human characteristics onto them. And honestly, there was a oh, yeah. like a year or two years ago now at the Film Society of Lincoln Center in New York, there was a, a series doing double features of David Lynch's films and Jacques Rivette's films. And I think in the same way that like in David Lynch's oh, movies, just mundane, meaningless, everyday objects are endowed with this like objects. mythic, spiritual yeah. potential, you know, like an, an outlet in a wall can become a conduit to another world I think in the same way um, Jacques Rivette's movies and this one in particular are about that power of like projecting onto things and giving them human qualities and making them important because you want them to be needed to be yeah I mean in this case a whole city right like Mm -hmm. all of these objects end up like um coordinating it themselves into this weird, uh, <laughs> uh, terrifying, meaningful web. Uh, I can't, um, I think it's, uh, earlier on in the movie, like in the first half that, uh, um, Baptiste starts explaining her observations, uh, to, uh, to Marie and Marie's just like, I don't see what you see, but she, she, Baptiste comments that the city is like a spider web. And right before she says that, there's like a city of the subway map. Uh, there's a map of the uh, city subway system, and it definitely mm-hmm. looks like a spider web. And I was like, "Oh Jesus, okay." Um, uh, and so, uh, I mean, and, and the fact that like you know a spider web, you get into traps, and in this case, it ends with uh, the moth getting trapped and shot uh, at the end is. Uh, and, and then some karate. Oh God, sorry. Yes, I don't know how I we have not mentioned that yet. Yeah, Baptiste into karate. We're not. Uh, I'm not going to say the exact ending just yet. Yeah. Um. Uh. Uh. uh There's karate though. <laughs> I would like to say after listening to all of this, I have no idea what this movie is about. Yeah, I don't know what you guys are talking yeah. about. <laughs> I know. I've seen, I've no, seen this, this is movie great. twice now, it's, and I don't know what no, it's about. The weirdly beautiful thing about it, because it is shot so simply, like to to yeah. to be fair on how you'll you'll probably judge it is that you'll need to watch it a second time. It really unfolds and keeps changing as the movie gets to the end, but like I need to watch this a second time to then just watch how it how it gets there in a motion. Um, um, 
Well, well, I think that's a, a good wait, point to uh, begin wrapping okay. up. So I'm going to explain karate real quick because it's important. That's, all right. Uh, that's sure, yeah. The the guy that uh, Baptiste, the mini biker, was um, coming at, whatever, was this other biker who turns into this side character that keeps showing up who uh, is simultaneously trying to tell them they're going down the wrong path by going deeper and deeper into this conspiracy in a game and tries to... It's He's an ambivalent character because he seems like he's trying to just keep them out of it entirely, but I can't tell if that's for positive or negative motivations, right? But so... Uh, Baptiste and this dude slowly like gain an affinity for each other in a, in a strange way. And, uh, Baptiste throughout the movie every morning, like does a karate routine, which is just like a very, uh, it's supposed to be a rigid kind of exercise that you just enact, um, as a warm up as a, as a routine. Um, but at the very end, the very end, they do it together. And that's the end of the movie. After Marie gets shot, and Baptiste doesn't know what to do with herself. The that dude shows up again, and the ending of the movie is just like this cross cutting between uh, how the footage usually looked and this handheld, weird, detached quality that definitely makes you think that they're being observed and watched. Uh, and they're just uh, he's teaching her the routine better, and that's it. And I don't. It's amazing, and just how that's just the end of the movie, and it's just uh, baffling. In a great way, and I want to watch it again. Yay, Rivet. There. It feels good to me. Workouts. You bet. Oh, and, 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 yep, workouts. Maybe the patriarchy somewhere in there. Workouts. Maxes. Yeah, all his movies are just about workouts. All right. Okay. I liked it. Thank you, Nathan, for showing me this movie. <laughs> I need to watch it again. You're welcome. All right. I don't. I don't. That, I don't know how that ended either. <laughs> All right. Um. Well, our la- our last. Yeah. No. Are you... <laughs> All right. Yeah. So Dylan, oh, you're gonna get continue... Zach. Hey, <sighs> Zach was he a max? No, I don't know what the that whole means. Time? Um. <laughs> All right. It's your. It's the, the last swap we have is Dylan. Your pick for me. Yeah. So uh, what was it? Uh, 1979. Howell Ashby directed a movie called Being There. Um. It stars Peter Sellers and Shirley MacLaine, right? And Melvin Douglas and, like, Jack Warden. Yeah, there's a lot of people in this movie. Um, But it's following uh, this character, played by Peter Sellers, who is a gardener for this old man who just passes away. And he just, uh, Chance, finds out that he has nowhere to go after the guy dies. Like they don't need his service anymore. The house gets closed up and that he's kind of out on his own. And apparently he's never, since he's little, uh, growing up in that mansion as the gardener, uh, he's never been outside before apparently. And has only learned through TV and, you know, being brought up by one of the, uh, maids of the house. And he's just kind of stuck out there, kind of flailing in uh, a sad way. Uh, he doesn't, he's really polite, but he doesn't, he's not very smart or it's, it's like, I don't, I don't know exactly how to describe it. He's very, he's very simple. Yeah. Okay. Sure. I mean, he's, 
he enjoys TV, he wants to be fed, and he likes gardening a lot, and that's what he's known for, or that's what he knows how to do. And so it follows him, find, like, stumbling around and getting caught up in uh, stuff in D.C. before he gets into an accident while admiring uh, a large television and gets his leg almost crushed by a car, and it has Shirley McLean in it, and she's the wife of this other uh, aging, dying gentleman uh, who uh, he basically uh, charms his way into his house accidentally. Uh, it's it's basically like a comedy of errors of like people assuming motivation onto him the whole time and him just kind of going with it because he doesn't understand how people work or how they're messing up uh, <laughs> exactly who he is. Um, but I picked it for you, Zach, because I know you really enjoyed Harold and Maude, uh, and it was directed by the same guy, and this he has a lot more money in this, but uh, in this, in this movie, in this budget, uh, but considering he is a 70s filmmaker, Hal Ashby, there's a way he kind of pushes back on the, uh, cynical aesthetic, I guess, or, you know, a lot of storytelling in the narrative by having this sentimentality to it, but it's not overbearing in a real way, and, uh, I know you like Peter Sellers, and so I thought, because you haven't seen this movie, that you should watch it. So, what'd you think of it, Zach? Um, yeah, th- th- that's the kind of uh, back to kind of how Ashby. It's it it is a very it's a very sentimental movie. It's but it's not. It's it doesn't feel like it's beating you over the head with this overarching message. Um, it seems like it's a very genuine thing, and that kind of helps by having Peter Sellers as this central character, because he he has this. Um, this very warm like you understand why all these people are like you know and like continue to like him and and, and throw him into these different situations because he's 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 very he's just so he is he's so nice um but yeah it, it's 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 interesting mm. he, he is like this they never really like say if if he has like some condition or anything but he's just this very simple-minded uh gardener who yeah his 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 right. the person who ran the house passed away and so they're kind of like I don't know what you're supposed to do here so he <laughs> he kicks out they they kick him out and then there's this this kind of comical sequence where he's going from the house and just kind of wandering around Washington DC with this amazing let me see if I can find I really, I really like the song. Let me see. It's, yeah, it's it, it's, yeah, it's like they, it's it's like, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's like they've taken, they yeah, they've taken kind of like this, 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 like they've combined <laughs> Richard Strauss's opening for that they used for two thousand one with like this soul oh, music, yeah. and it's That's- so cool. How, yeah, is it isn't it the opening of uh, two thousand one? It's the best big Zara but it's like a funky mix. Oh, is it the uh, is it the same version that's in um, 
Saturday Night Fever? Possibly. I don't know. Oh, I don't know. Uh, I haven't seen it. But yeah, it's, it's really neat, especially especially with oh, how yeah. they the, he, how they uh, put it in tune with 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 uh, Peter Sellers leaving the house, where like his first step out of the house, it's it's revving up that bum bum, and like he and then he takes a step. I love that. I was that, I was all aboard. But for then that, that funky <laughs> bass just starts coming in. Oh yeah. Yeah. Then the funky bass comes in, and, it, oh, and it's that, that's what he's kind of walking around to. Um, and so yeah, they and they they kind of have these this this whole f- it is, and they have this kind of fish out of water thing where he's you know messing around with the different gadgets. But yeah, he he's very much obsessed with television, and that's one of the kind of comical uh, you know motifs they that they're kind of using where somebody will be having like this either this conversation or coming on to him or doing something and he just like will switch on the TV and just start watching TV and then not not, not just watch one thing but he'll switch channels and be watching various programs uh, it's very no it, yeah it, the like the comic juxt- juxtapositions that happen because of that so uh, Shirley MacLaine's character ends up falling for him um, whatever because he's quiet and mysterious and polite uh and I guess she's she's gonna be alone once uh, the Melvin Douglas character uh, dies. Yeah, he's very sick. He's very very so. sick. Um, uh, and so she's alone. She doesn't have a lot of friends, and so they end up, uh, you know, having a connection, <laughs> I guess, or at least from her. But it seems it's mutual. Anyway, so she like ends. Uh, I don't think he knows yeah, what's going on. <laughs> you know, uh, so she ends up. Uh, I mean, she wants to have sex, but he just doesn't know what that means. But like something on the TV, like is two on TV that's two people kissing, and then he starts furiously kissing because all he can do is just like reenact the things he sees on TV. Uh, but then at one point, I think it was early. Uh, it was like another scene, but it was in the morning uh, during breakfast that Mister Rogers' Neighborhood is on, and that's on while she's coming on to him, and it's just like. Won't you be my neighbor while, you know, she's trying to jump his bones and it's just mimic the TV. Yeah. It's really good. <laughs> Sorry. Uh the the one thing that's that struck me most about this movie though is is one just having Peter Sellers in this lead role. He he was nominated for for the best supporting actor. Uh I, mean, I think he won it as well. Let me double check to make sure. No, how is it Doug- supporting when he's like or, or, the or main lead actor? He was not. He was nominated for lead actor. Melvin Douglas won for supporting actor. Excuse me. Um, but, but having Peter Sellers is he as an actor? I've always noticed with him that he kind of has this, uh, this 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 kind of warm quality, even when he's in his most absurd uh, absurd moments. There's always something you can always just read his and read kind of where he's going to next a little bit just through his face, you know, his facial expressions and his eyes. And this role especially, there's not much dialogue for him to really express how his character feels. And so a lot of it is just reading reading the eyes of Peter Sellers in these scenes and and Hal Ashby does a great job of giving you a lot of these very these kind of close-up scenes so like when you have when you have these two characters kind of interacting and you can tell that that you know the the Melvin Douglas character is trying to talk about some Washington Politico thing and and, and Peter Sellers is off looking at something else and, and <laughs> checking out a car or, or watching He's- TV. 
But Zach, is that he's just profoundly thinking about what he's hearing? That's 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 very true. Um, it, it, I I I just love to kind of watch how Sellers reacts with his face because you can see him reacting to what to what the person is saying or doing uh you know for instance with like the shirley mclean scene he you can you can watch him kind of reacting to her in and in, in noticing what she's trying to do but then he's immediately taken away from by the television or something else or i mean he just you you watch him his, doesn't know how to complete the social interaction he's just like yeah exactly it's and you so say you it's so his his face complete you can watch his eyes completely just turn away and divert themselves from from that whole that whole sequence um i'd like to mention that uh jack warden plays the president in this in this movie and i was thinking about he looks like if uh if donald trump was actually healthy that's what jack warden in this movie would look like he's a healthy donald trump but uh no 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 to to, to your point though uh not about jack warden but about faces this movie so much about social interactions, but faces, everybody's face. Like there is some amazing baffled faces of people in response to, to Peter Sellers, right? Like he'll say something that is like innocuous, but there's like a hollow ring to it. While the sun's just like, especially the doctor character, the doctor over, over, um, the Melvin Douglas character who's, who's, who's passing away. He's always around the house. Uh, and he, he, eventually is the one that finds out about yeah, he kind of clues in Chansey Gardner's real identity and the fact that he's just a gardener named Chance right uh, but there's just like this look on his face where after uh, Peter Sells will say something in response and he's just like did did he just say that wait it, no that's just me right he didn't actually just say that that's weird okay um, so the faces of this movie is great um yeah the, yeah the, he, he he yeah exactly in in like i said ashby does a great job of kind of, of framing it so that and he'll even he'll even play sequences where he'll just let everything play out without cutting and allow the actors just to kind of react to stuff um but the real kind of takeaway i, I took from this movie is i was thinking about the the title and and what it was saying about this kind of story and uh, i think the takeaway i have is that um i think we as we as humans i don't think i think we romanticize and like to think that we like to have this very in-depth uh dialogue with each other and and that we're going to be going back and forth and there's going to be like cigars and whiskeys and it's going to be you know amazing but i think for the most part that we just kind of yeah, I think for the most part we just kind of want somebody to listen and somebody to just kind of be there and and so, kind of somewhat bat off what we're saying, but for the most part just kind of take it in and have a face that seems like it's understanding what we're like what we're feeling and what we're saying and just you know that, that that's it. It, it. I think that we just kind of want to talk to somebody, and we don't necessarily want a response or, or a back and forth. We just kind of need to get some. On a, yeah, we well, we just need them to kind of. I was gonna say on Douglas Rushkoff's podcast, he made a point a couple of months ago that like when people have conversations on podcasts, that is often like the longest sustained conversation they will have with that person about any particular thing. Right. So that's an interesting point to bring up, you know, here on our episode 115, like how much time we have spent just like 
gabbing at each yeah. other like why <laughs> yeah oh no and doing it there's some sort of human condition stuff there right exactly and I, and I think that that's kind of what you see in this movie is that peter sellers is this character who is very simple he doesn't he doesn't ask for much and he's not looking for much conversation he just wants to garden and watch tv uh, <laughs> but but you have all of these characters whether it's the shirley mclean character whether whether it's the melvin douglas character or whether it's the jack warden character who's the president who they they just they want something out of they want something from other people and in life and and just everything else in general and uh what attracts them to the peter sellers character is just more his his empty canvas that they can kind of insert their their worries and their anxieties and their passions and their dreams and all of this stuff on and he'll either just kind of retort with a smile or you know a small phrase but that's all exactly but that's all they need they they just they just need someone to be there so that's what i kind of took from being there is that is that he's just he's he's just a person that's there and that's and that's 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 a fine that's a fine quality and so yeah you get i guess we can get well you get to this ending sequence which is um they're at i guess spoiler alert yeah there's the yeah what that that, that is a little uncomfortableness the the whole in, in in 2017 the whole the whole you know the the political stuff that's happening at that point but in this ending sequence i guess spoiler alert the melvin douglas character dies and they're at his funeral and the president is talking giving a eulogy and yeah i guess the political thing is that you have all of these like these politicos who are carrying the casket to the to the grave and they're does, all yeah. and they're all like planning who should be the next president and they believe that chauncey that, that, that peter sellers character should definitely be the president because everybody <laughs> likes him uh and because like he doesn't have a past that will won't quote unquote cripple him. Yeah, exactly. And so you have that you have them kind of like like you know like scheming behind the president's back and while this guy is dying. But then you also have the the Peter Sellers character who walks. Wait a minute though. Wait a minute though. And taking his taking the dude's coffin into a pyramid with an eye on the top. <laughs> okay. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's it, yeah, it's it, it's there's a lot of stuff happening, and uh, and then and then you have the Peter Sellers character who walks off and is like kind of tending to this tree, uh-huh. and then pretty much walks across some water, and it just ends. Oh yeah, he puts the but he's still walking on it. He is, but no. Let me add, let me add this though. It's in. in I, I was reading that Sellers was kind of angry about this and felt like this was the reason he lost the Oscar, which I can understand that because it really does take the punch. Because the ending is 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 very is is, is kind of profound. You have you, at least with the Peter Sellers stuff, not the Illuminati stuff. Uh, but like like you just have this scene where he just kind of it, you have this gentle music playing and he walks out in the water and it just cuts the black. But then it has the. Oh yeah. Yeah, but then it has this credit sequence where it should just be normal credits where they play this they play this outtake of earlier when when the when the when the seller's character right. leaves the house one of the things he gets into is he runs into this group of teens and they uh, they like start threatening him and asking him if he's if he was sent to them from mm-hmm. by this guy named Raphael and so they 
gurney. Yeah, so they like hold a knife to or uh, hold a knife or gun or whatever to his head and is like, if you see Raphael, tell him this. And so uh, they're like doing this outtake where at one point in the movie, the seller's character is like lying on this hospital uh, on this hospital cot or whatever, and yeah, and he's like talking. And in the movie, he he asks this. uh, He's getting his knee examined, but yeah, he's getting his knee examined, and he asks the doctor if he knows Raphael because the kids were black and the doctor's black. Um, and so the doctor's like, just like, are you kidding me, dude? But, uh, and so, nope. but so in the, in the, in the, in the movie, they just, they, he just kind of asks him and he goes, no, I don't know who that is. And they move on. But I guess initially they were going to like replay him, like Sellers replays exactly what the kids said. And so it's showing this outtakes where Sellers is trying to get through the sequence, but keeps la- breaking down and laughing. And it is funny, but I, I, I just felt like I, I kind of agree with Sellers that it completely takes the punch out of the ending because you have this really profound ending and then you have this credit sequence going on and you're watching these like bloopers and you're it just it was just it was a little strange i just wanted to add that uh I, no i'm i'm with you uh, on one hand but on another it almost just uh reinforces what hal ashby does in his movies or at least the ones that i've seen so far is that he, he subverts things in such weird small ways so in this case ending it going from like a profound moment like who exactly is chauncey and how can he walk on water Cut to, oh, it's just goofy Peter Sellers. Oh, God. Um, and so I, I, I totally am, like, with you that it, like, uh, yeah. So. Yeah. It, it was just, it, like, I was reading about that Peter Sellers was kind of frustrated that they kept that in the movie because they were just, because I think he felt like it kind of, well he felt that it just kind of undercut his Oscar because he has this fantastic performance and then yeah you just kind of have like the blooper reel where you know it's 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 like a it's like a you know like a like a Judd Apatow movie where everybody's just dicking around at the end you're just like I like I mean come on guys uh but I guess overall to, to wrap up I really I really liked being there I, I think I agree with your with your point that you made at the beginning that it has this it does have this kind of hammy quality in this in this message that but it doesn't really it doesn't feel overbearing it, there's this kind of gentle spirit that goes out that goes along through the whole thing and I in like I've mentioned before I really appreciated Peter Sellers performance it's it's a lot you know it, it, it lacks the uh, bombastic qualities that you would see in like Dr. Strangelove or, or even like the Pink Panther where he's kind of doing more physical stuff but he brings like I said he brings his physicality to more his facial expression in his eyes because this like I said this character is unable to really speak for in, in long you know long devout thoughts and so uh, you have to kind of find that all in what his, what, is, what his face is saying and what his eyes are saying and I think that he just completely sells that um, and I would recommend this to people uh, I think this would probably be a, a solid first Hal Ashby movie if you've never seen any of his stuff I think Harold and Maude uh, is, is a great one as well and it kind of shares these 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 qualities where he is yeah he's kind of playing off different things but uh, I would I would if you're a fan of Peter Sellers I would recommend being there I think that it's it it was kind of his swan song performance because he died a, a, a year or two afterwards but uh yeah overlooked uh overlooked Hal Ashby the landlord great movie also yeah Hal, Hal Ashby uh noted ex-Mormon things we have in common wow okay there you go uh I have ran away from Utah one more comparison uh where if you uh, okay, 
because it's it's like on the fence for people of how in the new season of Twin Peaks they relate to the character Dougie, but it's kind of like that, but a lot less painful, I think, because that is just uh, you know you you it just those scenes in Twin Peaks just keep going, and I think they're great and funny, but this one is like more to do. This one is like easier to deal with because Peter Sellers it doesn't go that far. <laughs> And just like the, there's nothing in there. Just the I think they're great. <laughs> Mr. Jackpots. Hello. Okay, sorry. That's it. So you should watch it if you like that. There you go. <laughs> uh, all right. All right. Well, um, shall we take a moment and and reflect upon the 50 episodes since? Our episode 100 spectacular. It's been a long and winding uh, road. I, I, it has. I was looking back through our podcast feed to see what all we have accomplished slash attempted in those 50 episodes. A couple things that stuck out to me. Uh, we did our second director series on One Car Y, which was really cool. Um, and then for the first time, we did two actor series. Um Kristen Stewart and Keanu Reeves. I felt like that was really successful and something we probably want to come back to in the future. More actors to to look at. Um, I thought the documentary series was kind of a challenge to ourselves that uh, I don't know if we um, necessarily crushed it, but I think we all grew in the process of doing that. Um, We put out another video essay, longer video essay, uh, we got ourselves embroiled in internet controversy with Small the Todd Gaines internet episode. Controversy. Let's not let's not over let's not oversell it. Zach, small. What? Well, I mean, we uh, we also ended up getting an interview with the Letterbox CEO, which was probably our highest profile interview ever. Um, and I think that that Letterbox series was probably the biggest engagement with um, our podcast that that we've had. Um, and now we're like selling merchandise and stuff. So I, I think we've we've grown a lot in the past fifty episodes. I really like doing the mini series format because I like thinking about a theme over like a month or so. So I think we accidentally had like a small recurring theme in this one of obsession, but that might just be because movies. So cinephilia is obsession. We are all obsessives. Pair, pair, we stare at a white screen for too long. That's delusional. Uh, see images, color. I don't. I don't. I don't know. You've you've kind of gone off the deep end a little bit in this part, Dylan, <laughs> with, the, with your karate and stuff. Oh yeah. No, I'm 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 excited to see what we can we can come up with in our next fifty episodes. I feel like uh, one of the things that we've really developed over the course of the last fifty is is kind of the website. I think that we've we've outside of just the podcast that people probably listen to. If you go to the website at cinematary.com, I think we've developed uh, a lot of different. Um, writing voices we have so many uh, one of the things i'm proud of with the site is that we have so many different different people who are are engaging in 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 sending us uh you know write pieces to write about with movies whether it's a it's a new release or it's a retro review um it seems like we kind of are able to get very uh, a lot of different textures for for different subjects and different films uh 
and I would hope to hope we in the next 50 that we see even more of that. I would love to see more writing and more people, uh, you know, participating in that portion. Uh, but I, I, I like I think that at least in the last 50 episodes, the, the site has really has really grown to be something that's that, you know, could be something even bigger. But. All right, I think we'll uh, we'll wrap this part up. This is gonna be a long episode, guys. Uh, this is gonna this yeah you got I mean it's 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 for I figure it's Fourth of July weekend. You can uh, you can put it in two parts. You can listen to one part at one point and the other part at another point. Yeah, there's not an episode of Twin Peaks on this weekend. Just listen to the podcast instead. Exactly. Supersized podcast. So yeah, I, th- I think I think it'll be fine. Um, but thank you, th- <coughs> Cinematary XXL. <laughs> uh, but thank you, thank you so much to all of our listeners. Uh, we again, we really appreciate and would love uh, any sort of engagement, whether it's through an email or a tweet or a Facebook message. Uh, we're always happy to hear from you. Um, and over the course of 150 episodes, we still uh, we still like you guys, whoever the hell you people are. Send us um, mail. Come on. <laughs> if if you send us mail, if you send us mail, we'll send you a laptop sticker. So, oh yeah, send us a Zodiac Killer letter. Yeah, M- see Twitter for. Please cut out pieces of newspaper and what? glue them. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, keep tabs on. Go ahead. Sorry. All right. <laughs> Thank you I was guys. Say, for... Keep tabs on Twitter for more ways to get free laptop stickers from us because there will be them. And free Twitter. laptops. Nope. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> we're, 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 we're running out of steam. All right. Thank you guys for listening, and we will see you. Oh, actually, oh, real quick, actually, we should probably preview. Next week, we're going to be going back to our Young Critics Watch Old Movies series. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, Chaplin's Monsieur Verdu. Uh, with uh we're gonna be having a guest uh dr charles malin of the university of tennessee is going to be joining yeah! us again he, uh, <laughs> he came and talked about the kid uh, about a year ago um but he's gonna be talking about verdu and uh yeah it's gonna be a good chat we're gonna have him this week this coming up next uh, week and the, the week after that we will be talking night of the hunter with uh, jeffrey couchman who wrote the book on night of the hunter uh at least the movie so uh two Oh my yeah, god. Yeah, so the next two weeks on Cinematary are going to be uh, very interesting. But uh, thank you guys for listening, and we will see you next week. Mm-hmm.